cue sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry. I see other guys use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, July 17th, 2012. I'm back from vacation. (laughs) Oh man, I've forgotten how to put a program together. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sound doctrine matters, and that's not just an opinion that I hold. That's actually what Scripture teaches. And so what this program does is it examines what people are saying, compares it to the Word of God, looks at how they're arguing. Are they making, are they basically proclaiming what Scripture proclaims, giving a living voice to God's Word and uh, and rightly handle it, rightly teaching it, rightly proclaiming it, and making sinners uncomfortable in their sin, so uncomfortable that they despair of their own righteousness and trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sins and what he has done for them on the cross. That's the idea. Um, if Otherwise, you got a problem because there's so many different religions out there, but they, the one thing they all have in common is, is that in reality, they're, they're peddling a form of self-salvation, self-justification. Mysticism, mysticism is a form of it. Pietism is another form of it. You get what I'm saying. And this all happens when uh, people go with their kind of default setting. Uh, and there are default setting. We're all, you know, all of us are born dead in trespasses and sins. And it's, uh, we're not capable of, of getting the gospel unless God gives it to us to get. I, that's absolutely true. And uh, so the idea is, is that our default setting is, is that we believe that we can placate the wrath of God by being good boys and good girls or good men and good women, you know, things like that. Um, but that, uh, your, your good works are not capable of placating the wrath of God. No, not at all. It takes a crucified and risen Savior to do that. And uh, when you understand what's really going on in the Scriptures, what's really being taught, you're going to realize that there's a lot of folks out there in churches of all places, pastors of all things, uh, you know, who are teaching and saying things that they ought not to say. 
And uh, so we do the comparative work and encourage you, dive into the scriptures, dive into God's word. And uh, and if you don't agree with me, well, get out your Bible and prove me wrong. That's what this program's all about. All right, so I've been gone for just a little over a week and a half. Uh, last program we did, well, actually, it was almost two weeks ago because uh, the 4th of July was on a Wednesday. We weren't broadcast. So it was uh, two weeks ago on Tuesday, so a little more than a week and a half. And uh, so that you know, I, I, I took the family and we uh, packed up the Pirate Christian Radio Mobile, our uh, Toyota FJ Cruiser, and uh, we headed down to Austin, Texas, uh, picked up uh, the, the son of one of our listeners who was also a friend of my wife, and we drove then to uh, Southern California to the Higher Things Conference uh, that was held in Irvine last week. And it just had a, an amazing, amazing time. And then the uh, the the icing on the cake, the uh, the whipped cream with the cherry on top. Was, uh, last Friday night, I got to go to the Dodger game and saw the Dodgers win. It was just great because they've proceeded to lose every game since. But it was though that was a great game. And so uh, we had fantastic seats. It was just a a great experience. And then after the Dodger game. Uh, that Saturday morning, packed every, uh, everything back up and then headed back uh, in the general direction of Indiana, dropped off uh, Jordan, uh, and <laughs> headed up to Arkansas f- uh, for breakfast with uh, Pastor Daniel Price of uh, Trinity Church out there in Bentonville, uh, Arkansas. And uh, just so you know that uh, Pastor Price uh, and his uh, business partner were the ones who donated the T-shirts that we're going to be making available for sale as the second half of our Bake sale. We're going to be making those available starting tomorrow. So, um, yeah, I, I wanted to make them available today. the The issue is, is that when you get back into the office after being gone for nearly two weeks, uh, the emails have a tendency to pile up. the The workload doesn't seem to go away. So you have to kind of organize the pile and go, okay, well, I can get to that piece of the pile today, but the rest of the pile is going to have to be uh, <clears throat> addressed in chunks, if you know what I mean. Anyway, so uh, that that's where I was. I when I was at Higher Things, I uh, I did have an opportunity to lecture twice. In fact, I uh, my uh, lecture was entitled Monkey Town: uh, Darwin versus Jesus on uh, Human Origins. And so, uh, you know, I did the same lecture two different times at the Higher Things conference. Great response, good kids, just amazing, amazing worship. If uh, yeah, oh wow. I, all I gotta say is this: is that uh, if you haven't been to a Higher Things conference, you or your kids, uh, um, listen. I'm gonna tell you, it's it's Lutheran liturgical worship at its just absolute finest, and it was just an amazing, great time to refresh the soul, to uh, um, yeah, kind of unplug a little bit. Um, from time to time, I get uh, I get emails from people or Facebook messages, you know, people asking, "How do you do?" Which you do, because sometimes I listen to your program and I get so depressed because things are so bad. Well, yeah, and uh, and so the idea is, is that I, I kind of have built into uh, my routine ways in which I unplug, disconnect, and you know I understand that uh, what I deal with and what I handle on a daily basis is uh, some pretty dark stuff. Um, you know, and uh, and so we try to attack it several different ways. One of the different ways that we attack it is using humor. Um, that helps a little bit, but uh, the, what I find is is that uh, to kind of help make it possible for me to uh, you know run this as a marathon, you can't run this, uh, you can't do fighting for the faith as a sprint. It's just it's impossible. Uh, but the the things that help me are my daily routine, uh, study in scripture, uh, and uh, and then 
little things along the way, weekends off, and then you know at least once a year, uh, you know, a, a vacation where I can completely disconnect and you know and and understand the battle's going to continue on. It's uh, that's just all there is to it. But I'm going to get a little bit of rest and relaxation and then dive back in. So uh, that was the idea behind our vacation. And it was just fantastic, and uh, I'm I was excited to get back in the studio today. Uh, I'm not excited by the pile, though. <laughs> so just that's something I'm gonna have to work through. Anyway, so tomorrow, just so you know, tomorrow we will be posting uh, the uh, the link uh, for the second leg of our summer bake sale to help us get through the lean mean uh, summer months. It's uh, it's just a tradition here at. Uh, uh, Pirate Christian Radio, that during the summer things just get, you know, um, well, financially dicey. So, uh, you know, what we do is uh, we, we last year we started this, we did a bake sale. This year we're doing it in two in two phases. And then tomorrow you'll be able to see the design as well as be able to purchase your own uh, T-shirt uh, should you so choose. And we are just really, really, really looking forward to uh, getting the design out. And I'm going to interview, I'm going to have like a, a brief 10, 15-minute interview with Pastor Price um, to, uh, you know, talk about the t-shirts, but also talk about his experience in evangelicalism. I, uh, if he's listening, you be ready to answer some of those questions. Cause the things you told me yesterday, Daniel, during breakfast, there's one or two things in particular, one or two aspects of what you said that I think would be worthy to bring up on the program tomorrow. So just, just to let you know. All right. So let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of fighting for the faith. Since I, I successfully avoided blowing myself up over my, uh, <laughs> vacation and uh, God saw fit to bring me back to the uh, PCR studios uh, here in the Pirate Cave in uh, central Indiana. Uh, what we're going to do today, I've got a Patricia King update. Have you ever heard of an angel of restoration? It's completely drawing a blank in my mind too, but apparently uh, Patricia King has a story to tell us about an angel of restoration. So we're going to be taking a listen to uh, Patricia King. Um, and then I've got a, a news story from the New York Times, an op-ed piece that uh, I'm going to be reading. And uh, it's from a gentleman who is a Roman Catholic. So I'm, I just want to make it clear that I'm not advocating Roman Catholicism. Uh, the, the, the point is, though, what he says about uh, liberal Christianity is spot on. And there's some things that uh, you know, there's some points that he makes that are worth taking a listen to, worth considering as we look at what's going on in liberal Christianity and understand that uh, this is exactly where the seeker-driven movement is heading, you know, just at an at a, a, a obscenely terrible fast clip. And uh, then what we're going to do, uh, last week, uh, Bishop Gene Robinson of the Episcopal Church gave a keynote address at the More Light Presbyterian Dinner. Uh, the, the, apparently there's a, a group uh, that are LGBT uh, advocates within the Presbyterian Church, and they call themselves More Light, um, which is ridiculous. It's it's they really should be in, named Utter Darkness. But um, what we're going to be doing, um, I know that other uh, folks have taken a crack at this audio. We're going to break this up into a couple of pieces, and what I what I want to focus in on on is Gene Robinson's tactic, the the rhetorical. Uh, devices that he's employing in this uh, keynote address, uh, and it's it's utterly frightening. But it, when you understand, when you see the theme that goes on and how he's mishandling God's word, 
it's important to note, tuck that away because what Gene Robinson does, a whole lot of other people do as well. And this is a common tactic used by people who are peddling false teaching and false theology. And, uh, of course, Gene Robinson being an advocate uh, you know, he's an openly gay uh, uh, bishop that, uh, you know, he's uh, the poster boy for false theology when it comes to uh, homosexuality. And so the tactics that he's using here get used by other people as well. But it's important to kind of hear it from him and then deconstructing it, uh, deconstruct it. And then what we're going to do in hour number two is we're going to go to Manchester in the UK to Audacious Church and listen to a... Sermon entitled Born to Win. So it's a standard edition of Fighting for the Faith. Make yourself comfortable. Uh, fuzzy bunny slippers if you have them. Uh, and, of course, if that is if the uh, weather permits. They do enhance your listener experience. Of course, if you'd like to enjoy an adult beverage while listening to Fighting for the Faith, we don't have a problem with that. Keep in mind that drunkenness is a sin. You don't want to be enslaved to those uh, good gifts that God has given us. So, uh, you know, <clears throat> listen responsibly, as they say. Somebody sent me, uh, you know, uh, one of those, are they called memes or memes? Anyway, yeah, somebody, you know, that uh, that guy for the commercials for uh, Dos Equis, the world's most interesting man, um, <laughs> they had they had sent me a photograph of the world's most interesting man. He says, I don't always drink beer, but when I do, I'm listening to Pirate Christian Radio. <laughs> so good to know that the world's most interesting man is a listener to <clears throat> Pirate Christian Radio. All right, with that, we're going to dive into the program proper. And since we have a Patricia King update, here we go. Are you in need of an angel of restoration? I didn't know such things existed, but apparently Patricia King knows all about them. And on her YouTube channel, uh, you can find this at youtube.com forward slash Patricia King 777. Um, you can watch this video where she talks about angels of um, restoration. Here we go. Jesus Christ is a God who restores. Uh, restores what? I mean, restoration is kind of a big umbrella term. I mean, somebody can be into house restoration. For instance, they might be purchasing old homes, and they restore them, you know, and make them like new. Uh, So you're saying that Jesus is a God of rest who restores things. What does that mean exactly? I'm not saying that he doesn't restore. It's just that you're a little, um, well, vague on the details. He loves to restore completely that which is broken, and I've been... Okay, so he restores that which is broken, but what does that mean? Um, Does he like restoring broken clocks? Does he like restoring broken computers? Broken cars! What exactly are you talking about? And do you have a verse that backs this up? Captured recently by the scripture out of Isaiah 58 that includes in about the fast that we choose to break... You know, to break the works of the enemy, basically, and to to bring restoration. But it says in verse 12, those from among you, you will rebuild the ancient ruins. In other words, that which has been torn down, that which has been destroyed. You will raise up the age-old foundations, and you will be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets in which to dwell. Yeah, um, you know, you just read verse 12. Um. Don't you think that, like, the rest of the context of that passage may be helpful in helping us understand what's going on there? In fact, you know, I'm just tempted to read um, Isaiah 58, starting at the beginning of the chapter, just so that I can see, you know, what the, you know, the context is going, uh, that's going on here. Isaiah 58, 
Verse 1. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Uh oh. Uh huh. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, so yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways. And if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God, they ask me, f- uh, they ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? <clears throat> Behold, in the days of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. And you oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight, and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. In such the fast is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself is to bow down his head like a reed, to spread sackcloth and ashes under him. Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the homelessness, to bring the homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked, to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your head, your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. And then you shall call, the, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. You take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of wickedness. If you pour yourself out for the hungry the set, and satisfy the desires of the afflicted, afflict, afflicted, then you shall uh, light your uh, your light shall rise in darkness, and your gloom will be as the noonday. And then the Lord will guide you continually, satisfy your desire in the scorched places, and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden whose waters do not fail. Huh. Um, yeah. Um, wow. Um, you kind of left all that stuff out there, Patricia. Yeah, it just makes me wonder if you're even really capable of handling God's word correctly. Uh, you know, just a little context would clear up so much of your false teaching. But I don't think you're really interested in the context, are you? Because Jesus is a restorer. You are called to be a restorer also because you're made in his image. His, his, his life is in you and you are in him. And so as the body... Well, Jesus is God. Does that mean I'm called to be a God too because I'm made in his image? You understand what I'm saying? Your logic doesn't necessarily follow. We have Christ on the earth. We're called to be restorers. And some of you that are watching this, this clip right now, you have broken areas within your life. Maybe it's relationships. Maybe... Broken areas. <laughs> Everything else is working just fine, except for I got a couple of broken areas. It's, you know, uh, broken promises where people have promised you things and then they broke them and you've been left devastated. Maybe there's uh, financial losses or losses of inheritance that need to be restored. Maybe there's there's damages in, in, in job situations. In fact, maybe you need a job restored to you. Maybe it was. So Jesus is all about job restoration taken from you or you know positions lost i mean there could be a multitude of different things that you are facing in your life right now yeah and those would all be consequences of our own sin that need the restoration of god 
And some of these things are completely out of your control. But I want to encourage you that if you will trust God, he can bring restoration. Mm, okay, so I have to trust God, then he'll bring restoration. Isaiah 58 didn't say that. There was a, a number of years ago as a ministry and, and for me as an individual, we went through a time of tremendous heat and persecution. And, and I'm not going to say it was easy because it had a lot of difficult moments. And especially, you know, like when, when you know, heavy persecution comes, it becomes personal from some people. And it's like, oh, my gosh, your heart sometimes can feel like mincemeat. The reason why I'm sharing this is because... Mm, so people were critiquing your false doctrine and... And you took it personally. Rather than repent, you persisted in your false teaching. Got it. Because there's someone that's watching right now that you're in that position right now. And it feels like you're powerless. You can't do anything about it. At that time, the Lord spoke to me and said, I don't want you to defend yourself. I don't want you to fight. I just want you to love me and love those who are hurting you and watch what I will do. And so we just honored everyone that hurt us, everyone that spoke evil against us. We, we just loved them. We took it to the Lord in prayer and we spent ourselves on the Lord. And our whole team did that. It was just an amazing opportunity to understand the depth of God's love for those that transgress against him because we were having people that transgress against us and so we were able mm, so those who were critiquing you like me and pointing out that you were twisting God's word and teaching false doctrine and false visions and stuff like that they were actually transgressing God by doing that right to fellowship with those sufferings of love it was a great opportunity and I want you not to waste your sorrows but use what you're going through right now to understand the heart of God in a greater way well, over the years, we saw God restore things, not because we were demanding it or fighting for it, just because we were in love with the restorer. And he started bringing people back who repented. They said, I'm so sorry. I don't know why I did what I did. I don't know why I said what I said. And, you know, just recently, a massive work of restoration came where someone who had who had really done a huge wrong came and, and uh, said, you know, let's just start afresh. I, you know, I... I want to support you. I want to love you. And it was just such a, a beautiful, sweet thing that happened. And that's because God restores. So anyways, I was actually enjoying that moment. And, and mm -hmm. Yeah, you, you do know that the way God restores is by dying on the cross for our sins so that we can be forgiven and God's wrath can be propitiated, right? I had had a, a email from one of our uh, workers over in Cambodia. And they had been visited in the night by an angel of restoration. They had... <laughs> so really, a, a restoration angel appeared to them in Cambodia. Wow. Not heard about this story. It had actually taken place before I had this happen to me. And, um, but, but they told me about this angel that showed up. And the Lord spoke to me and he said, this angel... And a company of angels called Restoration, I'm dispersing into the nations and amongst my people to restore loss. So it might be a lost reputation or a lost relationship or lost finances, a lost job, a lost inheritance, lost health. Yeah, I can think of a few things I've lost along the you know the course of my lifetime. You know, going back to my childhood, there's certain things I lost. Man, I wish I had them. You know, I'd like to have my like baseball card collection restored. <laughs> yeah, don't know where that went. That boy, that would probably be worth something. But he said, I'm releasing restoration in this hour. And it was just a. What does that even mean?
few days after that that I got an email from a friend of mine who had who had gone through a horrible divorce a number of years ago but God has just recently restored the relationship with her and her husband and they're actually getting married again there's a restoration by the way that is great news I'm glad to hear that there was forgiveness and restoration of a marriage that's a that's a great thing to have a report from the problem here is that here you're talking about Jesus being about restoration and you're claiming to get all these direct revelations from Jesus and visitations of angels that got and that Jesus told you that he was sending out restoration angels and stuff like that and you know, the subject matter that you're talking about Patricia really comes close to the gospel but you never get there you never get there and we hear more about you, your life, your stories, your wacky ideas than we do about the one who restored us, reconciled us to the Father by his, his vicarious life, death, and substitutionary death on the cross for our sins. Not hearing about that. I mean, so we're just talking about restoration in general, but it has nothing to do with rest, the restoration that's really discussed in Scripture. As a result of it, this teaching, this video, is a complete distraction. A complete distraction away from what God has done and what Christ has called us to do. To preach, to confess, to proclaim. We're not called to proclaim restoration angels. We're called to proclaim that we are reconciled to God because God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And the one who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's real restoration. That's real reconciliation. And that's the real work and the real accomplishment of the real gospel. This uh, video about so-called restoration misses the whole point and actually is a distraction away from the real point of restoration and reconciliation that's taught in Scripture. Just saying. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. We will be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Doesn't it bother you how some Christians are quick to argue about theology? Jesus didn't die for correct theology. Wait a minute. 
Did you catch the double standard in that statement? What double standard? You just said that Jesus didn't die for correct theology. Yeah, so what? Do you believe that statement is accurate? Of course I do. So if you think that statement is accurate, would it be safe to say that you think that statement is correct? Of course I think it's correct, that goes without saying. If I think the statement is accurate I obviously think it's correct. I wouldn't have made the statement if I didn't think it was accurate or correct. Did you notice that your statement was making a theological point? Well, yes, I suppose it was. So let me see if I've correctly understood the statement you made. Okay. You said it bothers you how some Christians are quick to argue theology. Yes, that's what I said. It sounds like you're saying that it bothers you that some Christians argue theology in order to prove that something that you believe or have been taught is not correct? Well, um, yes, I guess that's what I was saying. But then you made a theological argument to try to prove that Christians shouldn't argue theology. Well, um, yes. So, on the one hand you say that it bothers you that Christians argue theology in order to prove your theology wrong but then on the other hand, you turned right around and employed a theological argument in order to prove that arguing theology is wrong, that's cheating, you can't use a theological argument in order to prove that arguing theology is wrong, that's like using logic to prove that logical argumentation is wrong or using a mathematical equation to prove that using math is wrong. I knew it. Knew what? You're one of those people. What do you mean by those people? You're one of those people who loves theology more than people. What on earth are you talking about? You're a close-minded blogger who lives in her mother's basement and spends every day in her pajamas on a beanbag typing away on a laptop while eating cheetahs and drinking Mountain Dew. From the creators who brought you Bible Pants and Vision Lax comes the brand new super special awesome comedy album of the 21st century, Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater of the Budgie Cuts. Part 2. We here at Pirate Christian Studios have been hard at work crafting this album for maximum quality and hilarity. You'll cry. <coughs> You'll laugh. <laughs> You'll scream. <coughs> and you'll have uncontrollable flatulence. Just stick to the script, please. So sorry, um... Buy it now while stocks last. They download it. There is no supply which to run out. Oh, so you mean they can just go right onto iTunes and download it? Yes. Like right now? If they want to, yes. Oh. Well, the heck with this commercial. I'm off to buy it right now. Get back here! We're not done yet! Max Holiday's Birdcage Shooter, The Budget Cuts Part 2. Disapproved of by heretics everywhere. Get it before they do. All right, we're back. Uh, warning, you don't need restoration angels. No, your relationship with God is restored through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We're going to talk restoration and reconciliation. you got to do it with a cross. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. 
One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to post office box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Moving along here. From the New York Times... The headline reads, Can Liberal Christianity Be Saved? Okay, I'm going to mess up this guy's name. Um, the, uh, the, this is an op-ed, this uh, piece at the um, New York Times from the Sunday Review section, the, uh, and it's written by Ross Duthat. Uh, I don't know if I pronounced his name right, but uh, I'm sure somebody's going to say, no, no, Chris, it's pronounced this way. I apologize ahead of time. <laughs> anyway, I am familiar with this book, though, uh, Bad Religion, How We Became a Nation of Heretics. Fascinating book. And if I understand Ross's uh, history correctly, he had uh, converted to Roman Catholicism uh, as, a, as, a, well, as a young boy. Uh, well, maybe middle-aged boy. <laughs> you know, what do you say? Teenager, uh, junior high. Anyway, <sighs> and so keep in mind, this article is written from the perspective of somebody who's a Roman Catholic. So... Ross writes, he says, In 1998, John Shelby Spong, the, then the reliable, uh, the reliably controversial Episcopal Bishop of Newark, published a book entitled, Why Christianity Must Change or Die. <laughs> so this, this is perfectly set up, okay? Think about it. What does liberalism say? Christianity has to change or die. What do the seeker-driven movements say? Christianity has to change or it's going to die. Okay, why Christianity must change or die. Uh, Spong was a uniquely radical figure during his career. He dismissed almost every element of traditional Christian faith as so much superstition, but all, but most recent leaders of the Episcopal Church have shared his premise. Thus, their church has spent the last several decades changing and then changing some more. From a sedate pillar of the wasp, that would be white Anglo-Saxon Protestant establishment, into one of the most self-consciously progressive Christian bodies in the United States. As a result, uh, today the Episcopal Church looks roughly how Roman Catholicism would look if Pope Benedict XVI suddenly adopted every reform ever urged on the Vatican by liberal pundits and theologians. It still has priests and bishops, altars and stained glass windows, but it is flexible to the point of indifference on dogma, friendly to sexual liberation in almost every form, willing to blend Christianity with other faiths, and eager to downplay theology entirely in favor of secular political causes. Yet, instead of attracting a younger, more open-minded demographic uh, with these changes, the Episcopal Church's dying has proceeded apace. Last week, while the church's House of Bishops was approving a right to same-sex, uh, to to bless same-sex unions, Episcopalian Church attendance figures uh, for the 2000 uh, to 2010 circulated in the religion blogosphere. They showed something between a decline and a collapse. In the last decade, a a average Sunday attendance dropped 23 percent, and not a single Episcopal diocese in the country saw church-going increase. This decline is the latest chapter in a story dating to the 1960s. The trends unleashed in that era, not only the sexual revolution, but also consumerism, 
and materialism, multiculturalism, and relativism threw all of American Christianity into crisis and ushered in decades of debate about how to keep the nation's churches relevant and vital. Traditional believers, both Protestant and Catholic, have not necessarily thrived in this environment. The most successful Christian bodies have often been politically conservative but theologically shallow, preaching a gospel of health and wealth rather than the full New Testament message. But if conservative Christianity has often been compromised, liberal Christianity has simply collapsed. Practically every denomination, Methodist, Lutheran, Presbyterian, that has tried to adapt itself to contemporary liberal values has seen an Episcopal-style plunge in church attendance, Within the Catholic Church, too, the most progressive-minded religious orders have often failed to uh, generate the vocations necessary to sustain themselves. Both religious and secular liberals have been loath to recognize this crisis. Leaders of liberal churches have alternated between a Monty Python-esque it's-just-a-flesh-wound bravado and a weird self-righteousness about their looming extinction. In a 2006 interview, the Episcopal Church's presiding bishop explained that her communion's members valued the stewardship of the earth too highly to reproduce themselves. Liberal commentators, meanwhile, consistently hail these forms of Christianity as a model for the future without reckoning with their decline. Few of the outraged critics of the Vatican's investigation of progressive nuns mention the fact that Rome had intervened because otherwise the orders in questions, uh, question were likely to disappear in a generation. Fewer still noted the consequences of this eclipse because progressive Catholicism has failed to inspire a new generation of sisters. Catholic hospitals across the country are passing into the hands of more bottom-line focused administrators with inevitable consequences for how they serve the poor. But if liberals need to come to terms with these failures, religious conservatives should not be smug about them. The defining idea of liberal Christianity, that faith should spur social reform as well as personal conversion, has been an immensely positive force in our national life. No one should wish for its extinction or for a world where Christianity becomes the exclusive property of the political right. What should be wished for instead is that liberal Christianity recovers a religious reason for its own existence. As the liberal Protestant scholar Gary Dorian has pointed out, the Christianity that animated causes such as the social gospel and civil rights movement was much more dogmatic than present-day liberal faith. That's kind of an understatement. Its leaders had a deep grounding in, in Bible study, family devotions, personal prayer, and worship. Yeah, but the problem is, is even then, though, uh, they were trying to demythologize the Bible. They were studying the Bible to debunk the Bible rather than believe the Bible. Anyway, so the, I, I'm going to stop there. If you want to read the rest of it, it's uh, you can find this uh, at the uh, the New York Times website. Again, uh, Ross Dothay, Dothat, you know, I can't pronounce his name. Anyway, uh, can liberal Christianity be saved? But here's the important point, okay? Uh, the, remember the whole... Uh, the whole reason for adopting these new dogmas, these these the, the liberal point of view, is because Christianity must change or it will die. Well, we can now look back at the entire liberal theological project, if you would, and say that their premise was dead wrong. Christianity, if it changes, dies. In order for Christianity to continue... It must 
continue holding firm to God's word, even if it's out of step or irrelevant to the culture. Uh, you know, in other words, adopt liberal ideas that the church has to change or die um, at the risk of uh, losing the next generation of Christians. Yeah, that's what's at stake. So interesting article, fascinating read, uh, worth uh, passing along. So, and again, if you can uh, you know, read Ross's uh, book, it, again, great read. And, you know, keep in mind, it's written from the point of view of somebody who's um, a Roman Catholic, and I, you know, I get the feeling that he's like really for real a Roman Catholic. So moving along here, talk about uh, liberal Episcopals. Uh, let's uh, do a <clears throat> Bishop Gene Robinson update. We're this we're going to break this up into a couple of different segments, but uh, we got some music for that. about as much of the village people as I can handle, but, oh, man. So uh, that's our uh, update music for Bishop Gene Robinson, who last week um, gave the keynote address at, well, a group that calls themselves the More Light Presbyterians, and um, which is rather ironic because what you really should take away from this is that they're not about more light. They are in utter darkness. And why is it? Because they have completely abandoned what Scripture has said. Now, the reason I'm going to walk through this, and I'm going to break it up into several pieces over the next couple of days, is that this is classic uh, doublespeak. Okay? This, the best way I can put it, this is classic rhetorical doublespeak. Okay? Where he, Gene Robinson will say one thing, and what he means is the exact opposite of it. And it's, it's uh, well, it, it's not just fascinating. It's absolutely appalling to hear what you're going to hear. But you need to listen carefully to the tactic and the rhetorical techniques that he's using. And the reason why is because um, the, the, it's, almost, it's almost like Bill Clintonian. It, it built, it's Clintonian in this sense. It's strange use of language. And this is what heretics do uh, not just well in the Episcopal Church, but in other places like Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses. I, you know, I, we I heard this argument used by a dispensationalist recently. But uh, the point is, you got to listen to this because you know, you, you, Bishop Gene Robinson apparently is going to act like he's going to take the biblical high ground, and he's not. He's going to he says he's going to take back the Bible, but he's not. It, this is doublespeak, absolute doublespeak, and it's a rhetorical technique designed to basically 
blow a smoke screen out and, obfi- and engage in obfuscation. But uh, again, listen carefully. Here's Bishop Gene Robinson talking at the more light Presbyterian dinner at the uh, the recently concluded General Conference of the PCA. But uh, here, here we go. Uh, the work that I think you have done is to create enormous confusion in the Presbyterian Church. And you and I both know that confusion is a big step forward from certainty. All right, 29 seconds into it, and we're already going to have to uh, pause here. First of all, Scripture's clear that God is not a God of chaos or confusion. Um, and yet he's praising confusion, that this is a good thing. And you'll notice what he went, he went for, that supposedly um, it's a positive step when you get somebody off of being certain. Hmm. Well, that's weird, because if you stop and think about it, do you think that Gene Robinson is confused or uncertain about the position that he holds? Not at all. So, I mean, this is just a fascinating speech on so many levels, but we need to continue. By the way, it's, not, it's the Presbyterian Church USA. It's not the PCA, but we continue. It was not that many years ago when our churches, yours and mine and most others, were absolutely certain what God thought of us and what our churches thought of us. Where did they get that idea? Okay, so it wasn't that long ago that the Presbyterian Church USA, people in churches, were certain about the topic, the issue of homosexual behavior, right? Where did they get that certainty from? Answer, from the clear teaching of God's Word. God's Word is not vague. God's word is not ambiguous. God's word is not ambivalent. God's word is not, well, kind of so-so about this. God's word is perfectly clear and consistent that homosexuality is an abomination. It is a sin. That those who, well, persist in it and are unrepentant and will refuse to be forgiven, um, that they will um, not inherit the kingdom of God. They are outside of the kingdom. That it is unnatural. This is what Scripture says. So where did the? I mean, for two thousand years, the church has been sure and certain about the issue of homosexuality. Now he's thinking, well, oh, this is progress that we've moved from certainty to uncertainty. That's the tactic. Okay, so that's what all of these gay affirming clergy are up to. They're engaging in a purposeful agenda to shake people from their biblical certainty regarding this sin. And he's praising the folks like More Light for their engaging in creating chaos in their creation of uncertainty. This is a positive thing. And because of your courageous work, there are a lot of confused people out there. And that is a huge step forward. So that's great. So we're going to create confusion. So what the, this is, by the way, deconstruction. They've deconstructed what God's Word says, at least in the minds of many people in the church. 
created doubt where there was certainty. And this is a positive thing. Well, that's the first step. Now they're going to build on that. This is how Satan works. Okay, Think back to the Garden of Eden. I think all the way back to the Garden of Eden. The, the serpent, who is more crafty than any other beast, approaches Eve and he says, Did God really say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden, right? What was Satan's first move? To create uncertainty where there was certainty. Doubt where there was certainty. That was his first step. Once we can unbuckle somebody's mind from the clear word of God, we can then inject error, heresy, and our own ideas and separate that person from God's word. That's the tactic. And it's breathtaking that Gene Robinson here is so speaking so openly about this when clearly the Bible says that this is exactly the tactic that the devil employs. We continue. I mean, after all, uh, remember how change happens. And you've seen it. You have a, a, a worldview that pr pretty much interprets the world and, and your experiences uh, to you. And then you have an experience for which that worldview is simply not sufficient uh, to in incorporate it. Okay, notice uh, what he's going after here. And this, we're going to talk a little epistemology here. So you got a worldview, and all of a sudden you have an experience, a subjective experience that challenges the worldview, and now we've got to jettison the worldview. What was the worldview? Well, the worldview was is that God has spoken in his word. He's clearly defined homosexuality as a sin, among other sins. By the way, I'm not speaking as somebody who is self-righteous, okay? Uh, there are sins in the Bible that I commit daily. Okay, and there's sins in the Bible you commit daily. I'm not saying I'm holier because I don't do this sin or that sin or the other sin. No, the point of the law is to make us all understand that we're sinners in need of a Savior. That's the point of it. So here you got the bishop claiming that somehow that we we got to create change by creating doubt and chaos. And and the way we're doing this now is we're going to judge the Bible based upon our experiences rather than judge our experiences in light of the Bible. So, by the way, that's this is the classic technique. So we're if we, we're not going to look to the objective, we're going to have doubts about what is the objective, the outside of us thing, God's word, and we're not gonna, we're not going to have certainty regarding that. But doubts, what are you left with? Just your feelings, just your experiences. And, well, those are going to lead you astray 99 times out of 100. And you're thrown into confusion. And you come out on the other side either denying that that experience happened at all, or you come out with a revised worldview. I, I like to think of it as holy chaos. Um, Where does the Bible teach holy chaos? Answer, it doesn't. It actually speaks against this. I have a friend in New York who thinks that's what the Anglican Communion has been going through. Uh, pretty much what, you know, what has happened in families all across America. Um, kids come home and they say, Mom, Dad, I'm gay, and the family is thrown into confusion. And then the parents have to decide how deep, how broad, how high is their love for their child. Okay, so, the, so, so kid comes home, I'm gay. And then the parents have to decide how much are they going to love that child. 
Well, this is real simple, okay? This is just plain up simple. The Bible defines love not you or I or our feelings or our experiences, okay? So l- let me put it into another, you know, put it into a different category for a minute, okay? Let's pretend that my daughter came home and, she, you know, she went off to, you know, she went off, got married. She, my, my daughter's married. And she decided that she was going to come home, that she had left her husband, abandoned her son, and came home and said, Dad, you know what? I've decided to become a temple prostitute. This is what I really want to do with my life. This is, this is my big dream. Would I be loving by saying, oh, well, honey, if that's what you want to do, I don't have a problem with that. I, I mean, it would be unloving of me not to affirm you in that. right? You, you understand what I'm saying? I'm using a reductio ad absurdum here. So the, here's the idea. We all know, um, well, temple prostitution, prostitution, it, well, it's, it's sin, right? Um, you know, my daughter decides to come home and say, you know, Dad, I've decided that I, I'm, you know, in, you know, name the sin. I've decided that I'm going to become a professional jewel thief. You know, I'm going to go and steal jewels for a living, you know, like the, you know, from the Pink Panther movies. And, you know, and I want you to affirm me in this. Would I be loving if I affirmed her? No. Sometimes the loving thing to do, and if you have parents, you know exactly what I'm talking about, is to not affirm your child in their bad decisions or evil decisions, but to confront them, rebuke them, and call them to repentance. And so, you know, how is it that love now is defined as if, you know, if your son comes home from college and says he's gay, that the loving thing to do is say, well, that's great, son. I love you and I'm going to affirm you in that. No, I guarantee you, if my son came home and said something like that, I, my ne- next words out of my mouth would be basically, you're deceived by the devil, son. And you need to repent. You have come under the spell of Satan. And you are on your way to hell. You need to repent and be forgiven. I will not affirm you in such behavior or such decisions. It would be unloving of me to do so. How do I know? How can I be so sure? How can I be so certain? Well, plain and simple. God's word says so. That that is a sin. And not just a sin, a damnable sin. Right? We continue. So the gay kid, the Bishop of New Hampshire, came home to Dad, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and said, Dad, I'm gay. And now the Anglican Communion is in confusion, trying to decide how deep, how broad, how wide God's love really is. Hmm. How deep, how broad, how wide God's love really is. This is not a biblical definition of love. God is not some, well, you know, gr- you know, senile old grandpa, you know, with butterscotch in his pockets, patting you know people on the head, saying, "Oh, just do whatever you want, honey. No big deal. No worries. I love you. I love you no matter what you choose to do." Number one, that completely undermines the biblical view of sin. Okay, sin is slavery. Sin is not freedom, it's slavery. So, you know, apparently, you know, the bishop, <clears throat> you know, the bishop here, uh, Gene Robinson, is basically, you know, comparing his relationship to the Archbishop of Canterbury as if he's, you know, the Archbishop of Canterbury is his dad and he's just, uh, and he's his son. 
and challenge how are you going to love me anyway because I'm gay? See, notice the, the the other presupposition here is that gay is something that God made him, or gay is something that he is. Okay. By the way, there are this this sec, you know whether or not you're a, a boy or a girl. Yeah, you know your your sex. Um, that's not determined by you. That's given to you. Okay. I mean, seriously, when, uh, you know, when my grandson was born, you know, I wasn't sitting on pins and needles going, oh, you know, I wonder if it's going to be a boy, a girl, a lesbian, or a homosexual, or a transgender, or, you know, none of that. No. Okay. It's real simple. When my grandson was born, the doctor, you know, he came out, the doctor, you know, sucked the snot out of his nose, got him breathing, and announced, it's a boy. And there was very good objective reasons for believing that my grandson's a boy, okay? Just, you know, it has something to do with human anatomy. Plain and simple, okay? Homosexuality, if you really think about it, it is a form of basically sexual Gnosticism. It's a denial that you are who God made you to be. That's exactly what it is. And what and what is the logic behind it? I have an experience. I have a subjective feeling that tells me that I'm attracted to these types of people or that type of people, regardless of what the plumbing says I, I should who I should be re- attracted to. Therefore, my experience is more real than the tangible, material, objective evidence that tells me that I am a man or I am a woman. So my subjective experience trumps nature? And trumps God's word. Okay? That's what's going on here. It's a complete, basically saying, I don't care if I was made male or made female. And I don't care if God's word so clearly and objectively says this is sinful behavior. My experience determines truth subjectively. And there's nothing you can do about it. I don't feel this. I feel that. Therefore, my feeling and my experience, that's the truth. Folks, that is the epitome of rebellion and evil against God. That is holy confusion and chaos. And you are to be congratulated. Okay, by the way. There's a biblical verse here. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 33. God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. God is not the author of confusion. Well, then who would be the author of confusion? Well, Satan would be. But God's word makes it clear. There's no such thing as holy chaos in the, in the way he's talking. Or giving the gift of confusion to your church. It is a huge step forward. Now, it, it comes with some risks. You know, if, if you have a vision for how broad God's love is and, and it's too good to be true, I mean, really, that's the, that's our problem, isn't it? Is that the vision we're putting forward for God's extravagant love for God's creation, all of us, it, it's just too good to be true. So... 
Um, the problem here is, is that he's not defining this love biblically. Is the love of God so extravagant that, well, you hate to stay in your sins? Or are we called to repentance and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins? You see, it's repentance and forgiveness. Okay? What's being offered to us is not God just going, wink, wink, no problem, don't worry, I got you covered. I mean, that's one definition of love, right? No, it's that Christ bore our sins on the cross, and we we're called to repent and trust in him for the forgiveness of our sins. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, right? That's the idea. And so the gospel imperatives are repent and believe, repentance and faith and trust for the forgiveness of sins. We're not called to continue to live in sin. In fact, the entire New Testament bears this out, that you are not to take the grace of God and turn it into a license to sin, which is exactly what Gene Robinson is doing, and then claiming, oh, well, we just believe that God's love is extravagant. Well, you can believe all you want, but your definition basically is you're guilty of making a different gospel, a false gospel. That's what's going on here. It is an act of faith to say, but, but I know it is true, and I'm going to live my life. It's an act of faith. I know it's true, even though all of God's word says that's not the case. Yeah, you're, you're not actually believing what Scripture says. As if it were true. But that comes with some risks, because if you preach a God like that, you'll get into trouble. I promise you. People in this room already know it, right? I mean, isn't it astounding that you can be on 800 radio stations uh, preaching a God of revenge and hate and... and, uh, uh, By the way, the biblical God, um, just saying he's a God of revenge and hate, I mean, if you want to know what what your sin looks like being punished, just look at Christ on the cross. And he did that for you. God is both loving and just. You know, a, a non-mercy, and, and get by with it just fine. But you start preaching a God who is too merciful, too loving, too expansive, too inclusive. Well, no, he's not even preaching a God that's merciful. He's just preaching a God that says, do whatever you want. There's no need for mercy. Mercy implies that you need to be forgiven. You need God's grace. His view, yeah, you don't need to be, God doesn't need to be merciful or forgiving for anything because homosexuality, well, that's not even wrong. And there will be hell to pay. (laughs) And you know about that. And I know about that. What I don't understand is why that should come as a surprise. Not to Christians, not to Jews, certainly. I mean, how many times does Jesus tell us that if we stand on the side of history, if we stand on the side of a loving God, we will pay a price? Take up your cross and follow me. If you want to save your life, you must be willing to lose it. Again, I've got to point this out. Those who are calling all sinners heterosexual, homosexual, doesn't matter. All sinners, that would be all of us, you and me included, would be calling all sinners to repent of their sins and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. That's what it means to preach a loving God. And here he's just 
basically taking all of the standard definitions, all the biblical definitions, chucking them out, calling that calling that hateful and vengeful, and calling his new ideas truly loving. But he's got no objective basis for his ideas at all. It, it's all right there. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Why does it come as a surprise to us when we- uh, persecuted for righteousness' sake? Um, homosexuality is unrighteousness. It's not righteousness. And you're speaking as the bishop. Okay, you're a bishop in the Episcopal Church. Um, you, who's persecuting you again? You're talking from a, a position of power. We get grief for preaching that kind of God. So I would actually say that the 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 real question for your church and mine is if you're not in trouble because of the gospel you preach is it really the gospel now granted preaching the biblical gospel could easily and oftentimes does get you in a lot of trouble but the question is is the gospel you're preaching the biblical one i'm not hearing that I think we should wear our, our conflict as a badge of honor because it is exactly the kind of conflict the one you and I call Savior experienced all through his life. From the first time he spoke in his hometown synagogue and nearly got thrown off a cliff until that terrible day on Calvary. Mm. So... Um... Yes, I mean, who knew? I mean, if Jesus were around today, apparently he'd be gay-affirming, too, you know? It's kind of the implication here. So he's making allusions to the Bible to make it sound like he's on the side of, well, God and the angels and, and the biblical gospel. But he's gutted all of the meaning of the word love, grace, and mercy, and and thrown himself into a subjective argument. It's like, you know, the the little Bible verses that he's quoting, these are the means by which he creates the illusion that what he's saying is from God and that he's on the side of where well, the same side that God's on even though God's word says the exact opposite of what he's saying. I have to I have to say that my own inspiration for our movement uh is largely based on my experience of and my reading about the civil rights movement of the 60s and the way in which I continue to this day to be inspired by African Americans who went into the streets knowing they would face fire hoses and snarling dogs and sometimes death itself and they went anyway. So well, I remember that as a way to say to myself, toughen up. Of course it's going to be hard. If it weren't hard, everybody would be doing it. What is that from uh, a league of their own? You know, there's no crying in baseball. You know? <laughs> uh, or that wonderful uh, button that I love that says, stop whining, organize. <laughs> We need to toughen up. This is hard work. And we can do it because it is worthy work and it is godly work. And we should not... Uh, No, it's not godly work at all. 
because God's word flat out contradicts this and calls this sin, iniquity, abomination, unrighteousness. This isn't godly work. This is satanic work, according to the objective criteria and teaching of God's word. Be surprised when grief comes our way about it. The fact of the matter is 95%, that's my figure, uh, 95% of all the oppression that gay and lesbian, bisexual and transgender people experience in our churches and synagogues and mosques and in our culture can be laid at the feet of religious people. And, and, and the thing that keeps me sympathetic to my enemies in this work is I try to remember that they are only believing what we taught them not very long ago. Um, they have been taught what God's word says, what God has revealed in his word. Listen to this. They're only believing what we taught them. And it's going to take religious people to undo it. And you don't even have to be religious uh, to be affected by this. Um, we ha um, have a group in Concord called Concord Outright. It's for 12 to 21-year-old gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, and questioning teens. And I was with a small group of them one night, uh, seven of them. Not a single one had grown up in any church or any religious community whatsoever. Not a day of Sunday school in their lives. And we were talking about God. And every one of them knew the word abomination. Now, they couldn't have found the book of Leviticus in the Bible if they'd had a loaded gun pointed to their head. I want to point something out here. Abomination is the word God uses in Leviticus to describe a man sleeping with another man as with a woman. That's how the book of Leviticus, basically what God's opinion of that particular behavior of sin is, that it's an abomination. And he's flat out, flagrantly, audaciously, if you would, just attacking the clear teaching of the word of God. But they knew that word, and, and they thought that's what God thought of them. Even the, even the avowed atheists among them thought that's what God thought of them. <laughs> it's in the air we breathe. And you? Maybe, uh, as Romans 1 points out, that we have God's law written on our heart. Maybe that's why they know that. And I and our churches are responsible for it. And so we should feel guilty that a homosexual, a practicing homosexual, knows the word abomination. Notice, apparently, those who are calling homosexual sinners to repentance are the ones who need to repent. The tables are turned here. And, and it is encouraging to see signs that say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. But we're going to have to see a lot more of them. And we will live to see the day when the church of Jesus Christ in whatever form will repent of what it has done to LGBT people the way we have repented of what we did in slavery. Oh, man. Okay, we're going to stop right there. By the way, yeah, I, I ain't repenting, and neither should you. If you believe what Scripture says regarding sin, the sin of homosexuality, just as the sin of... <laughs> lying, cheating, stealing, adultery, you name it, okay? 
There's a whole group of sins, and we're all classified as sinners, okay, including those who are engaged in unnatural, perverted sexual behavior, homosexuality. It's a sin. I'll never repent. I will die a martyr's death if necessary before I would repent of calling homosexuals to repent and to be forgiven by their crucified and risen Savior, who died for the sins of homosexuals. Something to consider. So we're going to stop right there. Again, this is breathtaking. We're probably going to break this into three pieces over the next few episodes of Fighting for the Faith. But I want you to hear the rhetoric, the bravado. the I mean, this is 180 degrees backwards. This is calling good evil and calling evil good. This This is attacking the clear teaching of the word of God and then saying that your cause is godly. <laughs> I mean, wow. I mean, there's deception and then there's deception. And this is deception of the deepest and most serious and highest magnitude. Pray. Pray for these people that God would open their eyes to the truth and bring them to repentance for perverting his word, for attacking what he's revealed, and to providing comfort to homosexual sinners rather than calling them to repent and to be forgiven. Yeah, he's making them feel comfortable and secure in their sin rather than calling them to repent and be forgiven for their sin. Big difference. All right, we're up on our second break, and when we come back, we've got a uh, sermon review. I haven't done one of these in a while. (laughs) We're going to go to uh, Manchester in in the U.K. and uh, at Audacious Church and listen to a sermon entitled Born to Win. I have no idea that's what the Bible taught, but uh, we'll see what this is going to say here. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Listening to Byron Christian Radio. Have you purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long-time Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga. 
From the creators who brought you Bible Pants and Vision Lax comes the brand new super special awesome comedy album of the 21st century. Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater of the Budgie Cuts. Part 2. We here at Pirate Christian Studios have been hard at work crafting this album for maximum quality and hilarity. You'll cry. <coughs> You'll laugh. <laughs> You'll scream. <coughs> and you'll have uncontrollable flatulence. Just stick to the script, please. So sorry, um... Buy it now while stocks last. They download it. There is no supply which to run out. Oh, so you mean they can just go right onto iTunes and download it? Yes. Like right now? If they want to, yes. Oh. Well, the heck with this commercial. I'm off to buy it right now. Get back here! We're not done yet! Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater, The Budget Cuts Part 2. Disapproved of by heretics everywhere. Get it before they do. Okay, we're back. Hour number two, sermon review time. <laughs> Just reminded myself this is what I do for a living. <laughs> and, and you know what? It was really hard <laughs> picking the first sermon to uh, review. Yeah, I just, I'm just saying. All right, let's do this. Got a warm-up stretch out here. Oh, yeah, here we go. The good, the bad, the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us from Audacious Church from Manchester in the United Kingdom. Paul Reed presiding. The name of the sermon is Born to Win. And you know, Paul really tries to make this a biblical sermon. He really, truly tries. <laughs> I just don't think he pulls it off, though. So as we're listening to this sermon, one of the things you're going to need to keep in mind is, is that it's not enough just to quote a verse. Gene Robinson was quoting verses out of context. What's important is that you read them in context and that you are teaching what God the Holy Spirit revealed there in the context of that passage. You know, the, the idea here is that verbal plenary inspiration, uh, that you know God inspired these words and these words contain a message, you want to make sure that you get to that message itself and that what you're saying about God is faithful to what God has revealed. You don't want to blaspheme God by putting words into his mouth or making him say a particular thing he didn't say or be upset about a certain thing he's not upset about. You, you get what I'm saying. So, let me kill the music. So, without any further ado, again, here is Paul Reed and his sermon entitled Born to Win. Here we go. 
This message was recorded live at Audacious Church. For more information or to purchase resources online, go to audaciouschurch.com. Tyler, my message tonight is this, is born to win. Born to win. Now, I know that that sounds a little bit like a positive thinking American business talk. Yes, it does. That some middle manager might do for his depressed staff on a Tuesday morning. Could you have this conversation with the Dodgers, please? Um, <laughs> they, they, they won the first game coming out of the, uh, you know, the All-Star break. And then they've lost every game since. They lost two to the uh, San Diego Padres, and then they lost again to the Phillies. Could could you have this talk with them instead of you know doing this at church? It, I would be most grateful. Come on, guys, you're born to win. But actually, it comes from a deep conviction in my heart, and I'm yeah, wrong place to look. Yeah, you know, you see, everyone's going, oh, that's great. Come on, pastor, preach it. Whew, yeah, you, 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 listen, are you familiar with what Jesus says is inside of your heart? You don't want things coming out of there. Trust me, the things that come out of there, you're probably going to want to kill them. The idea is out of the heart comes all kinds of sin, murder, theft, adultery. See, the heart is deceitfully wicked. So, yeah, you're not supposed to be preaching what's inside of there. Yeah, that would be the equivalent of me going, you know, hey, you know, I'm thinking about uh, uh, preaching a sermon next week. And, you know, what I did is I found over here, we found the sewer cover, and I'm going to just going to crack that thing open, and I'm going to preach whatever's inside of that sewer that I can see with my eyes. That's that's the same thing, okay? Preaching what's in your heart, you might as well exegete the sewer. I know that sounds kind of strong, but that's the idea. No, no. Biblical pastors, Christian pastors are called to preach the Word, because all scriptures God breathed, and so if you, rather than seeing into you know preaching what's in the heart of a man, we want to be taught what's in the mind and the heart of God, and the place we go to that is not inside of our own hearts, but inside of God's word. You, you see the difference? Sure, for many many of you in church tonight that know God, that He designed you to win. Yeah, Ephesians 2, 1. Uh, see, I'll just kind of give you an idea here. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of, of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. See, you see, here's a biblical text that basically says that all humanity, that our problem is not that we haven't recognized that we were born to win, but our problem is, is that we were born dead in trespasses and sins and at war with God. And we were children of wrath, like all of mankind. You get the idea here? So here you're saying you're going to preach this important message that's on your heart. Bad place to look. And it contradicts just some clear passages here. You get what I'm saying here? We continue. You were created, you were made in his image to be a person that wins in life. Mm. Yeah, no verse, no verse to say that. You are familiar with the uh, biblical teaching regarding the fall. 
Adam and Eve, they were the the only sinless, well, they were sinless up until the day they disobeyed God. All of us now have inherited their sin and their corruption. Yeah, so, hey, we were all born in God's image. Well, actually, you got to understand that since the fall, that image of God is broken and shattered and in pieces and shambles. You get what I'm saying? And we need to not just understand that, but we need to understand it so much that it starts to affect the way that we live. The Bible says, in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize. Run in such a way that you would get the prize. So run like a winner, is what it's saying. Uh, you took that out of context. So what I want you to do is is kind of set the tone for the next few minutes. And when I get to the end of my message, we're going to end by praying and really giving you an opportunity to respond to God because I believe people who win are people who respond. You don't find... So I believe that people who win are the people who respond. Again, wow. Um, you got any biblical passages that back up any of these assertions that you're making? Because you're, you're making a lot of assertions. But you're not um, really teaching what the Bible teaches. By the way, 1 Corinthians chapter 9 is where you got that run like you run, you know, to win the prize thing. And it's it's interesting what happens when you put it in context. Yeah, if it, folks, if you got your Bible, uh, flip on over to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And I will be reading from the ESV. That's the uh, the translation that I prefer to work with. I find that to be far more accurate than the NIV. And I base that upon my knowledge of the biblical languages. Um, but First um, uh, Corinthians chapter 9, I'll start at verse 19 to give just a little bit of context. Because our three primary rules for sound biblical understanding are context, context, and context. Just because somebody reads a verse doesn't mean that that's what it says when you put it in its context. You want to look at the context to make sure you're not being deceived. 1 Corinthians 9, 19, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant of all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might be uh, win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means... Uh, I might have, I might save some. I do all of this for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. So do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do not receive a perishable. Uh, to, uh, they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not want. I do not uh, box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Get it? It's like, oh, okay, so this is about keeping your body under control so that even after preaching the gospel, you're not disqualified because of some grievous sin. You, you get what I'm saying? We continue. find winners sat on the backside doing nothing. You find winners up early, out early, working hard, doing what it takes. And so we're going to create that opportunity in a few minutes just to, for you to respond. But before we do that, I want you to just close your eyes. Even if you're kind of not, not used to going to church, you don't even know whether you believe in God, just stay with me for a moment, close your eyes, and I want us to pray. Father God, I pray 
that you will give us something special tonight in our hearts, something of a conviction, something of a realization that we were created to win. Thank you, God, that you are the ultimate victor. You're the ultimate winner. You're the one who paid the price and won that ultimate battle over death and sin and, 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 and set us free. And so God, out of that realization... Okay, little allusion to the gospel itself. And they didn't really preach it, but you got like a reference to it. I pray you'd bring life and truth tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Awesome. Take your seats. Thank you, band. <laughs> I really believe that you were born to win. That's going to be something that you might get sick of me saying... Yeah, I'm already sick of you saying it because uh, you, you haven't really got that idea from a clear biblical passage, but you told me that came out of your heart. I'm going to say it a few times. You were born to win, but I just need a girl to come and open this bottle for me. Thank you, Sophie. I loosened it. I believe God is desperately committed to you winning in your life. He's mm, Okay, well, that's great that you believe that. Um, again, uh, biblical passages that say that, please. Set you up to win. You know, the Bible says in Psalm 23, Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. Yeah, you're taking that out of context. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. Yeah, it's true, but stop calling me Surely. So yeah, yeah, Psalm 23, the great passage, you know, my, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Um, yeah, it's not saying that the, the, the statement, surely goodness and mercy will follow me. That doesn't mean that God wants you to win at life. I mean, I don't even think this is a biblical category. You're, you're reading that into that verse that you've quoted out of context. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's almost as if God is stalking you, hiding behind every corner, goodness and love, so that he can jump out on you, not to get you, but to help you win. He's oh, Really? That's not what that verse means at all. You know, the famous parables in the Bible, when Jesus talks about the parable of the talents, that tells us so many things about the heart of God. But one thing it tells me is that the master in that story desperately wanted to give an inheritance to his servants, to his kind of... Desperately wants to give an inheritance? Well, then he should do it. That's what he desperately wants to do. ...adopted sons, and so he set up this elaborate plan just because he wanted to give them something. God has... Uh, nowhere does it, in the parable of the talents does it say that the reason behind that was because God wanted to give them something. Um, it just it doesn't say that in any of those parables. So uh, how are you getting this out of there? Uh, it's for you to win. I don't know uh, how many of you go to life groups. I trust many of you do. But in our life groups over the last few weeks and months, we've been doing this series about the blessed life. And it's really been sort of hammering home that message that we're supposed to be blessed in our life. We're supposed to, we're supposed to be blessed. You've got to hammer home that message. We're supposed to be blessed. Again, where's the clear passages that say we're supposed to be blessed? By the way, parable of the talents, Matthew 25. Um, Jesus says, the kingdom of God will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another 
uh, uh, two, uh, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went away at once and traded with them, and he made five more talents. So also he who had two talents made two talents more, but he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them, and he who had received the five talents with them, bringing uh, five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, he who had uh, the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I've made two talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here is what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I, uh, that, that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have scattered no seed. You ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I could, should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away, and cast the worthless servant into outer darkness, into that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh-huh. Well, um... The punchline of the parable doesn't seem to be making the same point that Paul here is making. I think Paul doesn't understand what the Bible teaches. ...to win in our life. Last Sunday, excuse me, Pastor Mark uh, Foster preached a brilliant mes uh, message the Sunday before last, rather, called Savor the Favor. You remember that message? It was so awesome. It was about the fact that we're supposed to live and position ourselves in the favor of God. And I know that Pastor Sophia uh, preached on last Sunday. Pastor Sophia? Oh, well, um, it's against what God has revealed for a woman to be a pastor. A message called the Love Revolution. And really what I'm sharing with you for these next few minutes comes off the back of what Pastor Soph said. Because in our life group this week... If you don't know what life groups are, it's like audacious church in bite-sized chunks. What we do is we go in homes all over the city and we take a, a bite out of a message and we chew it over. And we talk about it and we pray about it and we argue about it and we laugh about it. And this Wednesday, one of the questions in the life groups was really challenging to me that Pastor Soph had, had sort of written down for us to discuss. The question went something like this. What challenges do you face in obeying the command to love each other. What challenges do you face in obeying the command, not the suggestion or the good idea, but the... What challenges? Yeah, well, um, well, if I could just identify those challenges, I would just perfectly obey that command. I mean, where would I begin? Really? Command. Utter confusion of long gospel at this point. And to love one another. And I thought about it and we discussed it and we threw it around in our life group. And then I killed the conversation by saying the biggest challenge that I face in obeying the command is me. Good answer. Because I am selfish. Right on. Like that answer. 
So what's the solution? <laughs> and everybody said, amen. <laughs> I'm at war with myself. I understand and I desperately want to do what Pastor Stolf challenged us to do, to obey that command and love. But you know what? I'm at war with myself. My biggest problem is... Actually, you're at war with God. Me. Yes, you're right. You are your biggest problem. Good answer. It's been right through human history. You know, uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, not a disciple, but an apostle, one of these people that sort of uh, were, were instrumental in starting the church. He, he, he wrote a letter to some other people, some other Christians in the book of Romans. It's in chapter 7, and he's kind of describing brilliantly the same quandary that I have. He says, I don't... Yes, he is. Pay close attention to this. I don't understand what I do. Because what I want to do, I don't do. And what I hate to do, I do. And verse 19 says, For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I want... <laughs> For I don't do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep doing. It's right. Now, this is, this is a perfectly great description of the quandary that all Christians find themselves in because we struggle with our sinful nature. It's not about not wanting to do the right thing. It's not about not wanting to win. It's about the war that I'm at with myself. So the question I want to... So is it a sin to not want to win? What, I mean, what does that phrase even mean? Uh, you know, you were born to win. Win what? Answer in just a few minutes that we've got together tonight is how do you do it? We recognize that we were born to win. Let me tell you this again. You were born to win win yeah repeating it over and over again rather than actually preaching a biblical text will not make this true not you're going to get to victory one day and it will be you know in that great moment when we're all in heaven with jesus but right now this side of eternity you were born to win so what's the solution i mean you've identified the fact that uh, you got your sinful flesh that's um, not doing the things of god that you're you know you're at war with yourself so how on earth are you supposed to win? So, in the face of this challenge, I've got a quandary like many of you, I guess, in that how do we do it? I know I'm supposed to, but how? There's another powerful verse. It's in Galatians chapter 5. This is the same guy writing to a different group of people. And uh, verse 16 to 26, it's quite a passage, but I'm going to read it to you quick before we get... Uh, any further. I'm going to read it to you out of the message. I don't know if you know what the message is. The message. Yeah, the message is something to be avoided at all costs. It should never be preached from a, a Christian pulpit. Is a paraphrase of the Bible. It's like someone took the, the original text of the Bible and kind of reworded it and put it into what they call contemporary English. So I'm going to read it to you. I really want you to try and catch the spirit of this because this is Paul saying, here's how you do it. Here's how you win. I know that it's a challenge because he's already said, I'm the same. I want to do good, but I can't do good. I try and do good, but I don't. The things I don't want to do, I do. But then he writes these words, verse 16 of Galatians chapter 5. Are you with me? All right. It says, my counsel is this. He's saying, my advice to you is this. Live freely, animated and motivated by God's spirit, capital S. That's where we're going, just for those of you that need to know, where's the preacher going? We're going towards the capital S spirit, okay. Then, 
You won't feed the compulsions of selfishness, for there's a root of sinful self-interest in us that is at odds with the free spirit, small s, just as the free spirit is incompatible with selfishness. These two ways of life are antithetical, which means like directly opposite, so that you cannot on any, sorry, so that you cannot live at times one way and at times another way according to how you feel on any given day. Why don't you choose? Okay, by the way, just want to point this out. He's put his finger on a verse that does work towards the answer to the quandary that he's uh, brought up. To be led by the Spirit, capital S, and so escape the erratic compulsions of a law-dominated, that law's talking about the law of religion, that a law-dominated existence. It's obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time, he says. Repetitive, loveless, cheap sex, a stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage, frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness, Trinket gods, magic show religion, paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, all consuming yet never satisfied wants, a brutal temper, an impotence which means lacking the ability to love or be loved. Divided homes and divided lives, small-minded and lopsided pursuits, the vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival. Uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions, ugly parodies of community. I could go on, he says. That was quite a lot. (laughs) This isn't the first time I've warned you, you know. If you use your freedom this way, you'll not inherit God's kingdom. But what happens when we live God's way? He's asking the question. How about, he's saying, we live God's way? He brings gifts into our lives much the same way that fruit appears in an orchard Things like, listen to the verbs. Live is law. Where's the gospel? Paul, but let me read the passage, uh, the the verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 16 from Galatians, from the ESV. Paul says, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. The desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, pay attention to his verbs here. He just used the verb live. Live, a synonym would be obey. Okay? That's law. Where's the gospel? Affection for others. So he's setting up a choice, basically. You can have all this, or you can have all this. And the deciding factor is living God's way by the power of, capital S, the Spirit. Affection for others. Exuberance about life. Serenity, which means like calm and peaceful. We develop a willingness to stick with things. How many people need that in their life? A bit of stickability. A sense of compassion in the heart and a conviction... That a basic holiness permeates, which means kind of goes in and throughout things and people. We find ourselves involved in loyal commitments, not needing to force our way in life, able to marshal and direct our energies wisely. Verse 25 says this, since this is the kind of life we have chosen, the life of the spirit, let us make sure that we don't just hold it as an idea in our heads, 
or a sentiment even in our hearts, but we work out its implications in every detail of our lives. Uh, notice he's again, he's preaching from the uh, <clears throat> message paraphrase. Paraphrase. It's been a while since I've done radio. I got to get back, you know, get used to it here. Which is weird because his misreading of this text is undoing what Galatians actually says. Okay. Um, yeah, if you got your Bible, flip to Galatians chapter 2. Paul here, is, this is a long-running argument in the book of Galatians against works righteousness or the righteousness under the law as opposed to the righteousness that is by faith. Okay, Verse 15, chapter 2, verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified or declared righteous by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in, in Christ and not by works, because by works of the law, no one will be declared righteous. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Well, certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, you could say righteousness through obedience, righteousness through living. If righteousness is achieved by obeying or living the law, then Christ died for no purpose. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Christ Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. So let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? By the way, Paul here is setting up this dichotomy of the life of the Spirit regarding the life of the flesh. The life of the flesh is that raw, stark, naked decision to try to obey God's Word. The life of the Spirit is believing with faith. That's what Paul's pointing out here. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So know that Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all nations be blessed. So those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. 
Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. We receive the spirit by believing, by trusting the gospel message, the good news that Christ died for our sins and was raised again for the third day in accordance with the scriptures for our justification. What Paul Reed has done here is correctly identify the problem. But the solution is the exact wrong solution. He's preaching law and obedience, not preaching faith and belief in the promise of the forgiveness of sins. We continue. So how are we supposed to live this thing? We're supposed to live by the Spirit. You were born to win. And the way you win is through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not a formula. It's not an equation. It's a revolution on the inside where you accept Jesus and then continue to be baptized and filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. This is not what this text says. You're just putting out a theology with any, without any text that say anything even remotely like this. So how do we win this thing? Three things real quick. The first one, if you're going to win this thing by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you want to know? Everybody? Okay, for those that said, yeah, I'm going to tell you. The first thing you've got to do is you've got to understand what you're up against. Mark chapter 12 is this incredible account where Jesus is trying, uh, Jesus is just interacting with some religious leaders. And the so he's just making up his own list of things that will be the secret to unlocking how to be obedient. Trying to trick him. They're trying to get him to make a mistake. And so they say in Mark 12, uh, 28, they say, um, which is the greatest commandment? What's the most important thing? And then Jesus turns around and says two things. One, that Pastor Soph preached on last week about loving your neighbor as yourself, about being a person of love. But the other... By the way, that's the summary of the Mosaic Law. That's the thing that condemns you. And the only way you can be saved by the Mosaic Law is if you keep it perfectly. And you haven't done that. The command, he said, was this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. So, living and loving God authentically, according to the words of Jesus, is a holistic experience. It's not about just your mind. It's not about just your soul. It's You're missing the whole point. That's the thing that condemns you. Jesus wasn't saying, just go love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the law. That's the thing that condemns you. You haven't done it. The righteous live by faith. For by works of the law, no one is justified. For if there was a law given by which men must be saved, then Christ died for no reason. That's what Paul says. You don't understand what it means to have the life of the Spirit. The life of the Spirit is the life of believing and trusting in the message of the gospel that it's for you, that even you, a sinner, can be forgiven by God and are forgiven in Christ. 
It's not about just your body or your spirit. It's a whole deal. It's a holistic experience. What that creates in me is a mental picture of a staff room. I appreciate that some of you are not there yet. You are thinking, it does not create that in me. Allow me to elaborate if I can. Basically, in every decision that you make, from the small, menial decisions to the grand, life-changing decisions, I believe there's a staff meeting that goes on inside the personhood of you. The person of you. A staff meeting that takes place and present at that meeting are the four parts of you that Jesus just said, if you want to love God, then you need to love him with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. I believe those four things are at this meeting because we're not just a spirit. C.S. Lewis said this and my super best mate Nate uh, tweeted this quote this week. C.S. Lewis said, God never meant man to be purely spiritual. That's why he uses material things like bread and wine to put new life into us. The Bible says that Jesus himself grew in these four areas. Luke 2.52, the Bible says it's like the sign-off of Jesus' childhood. And all we know about his sort of teenage years and years in his 20s is that he grew in four areas. Isn't it a coincidence that it's the same four areas that we're talking about here? That's how important it is. It's, uh, the Bible says Jesus grew in wisdom, stature, favor with God, and favor with man. Exactly the same four areas that we're talking about. So present at this meeting are four people. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. The word heart there is the, is the uh, original word is cardia, which means the center and seat of spiritual life. You know when people say body, soul, and spirit, everybody knows what the soul and the body means, but this part is talking about the spirit, your heart. When the Bible says your heart, it's... Uh, I'm sorry, isn't... I think you're taking the definition of suke and, and applying it to cardia. Ay, 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 this is a mess. So the way you, uh, you, the way you obey God so that you can win is you need to have a staff meeting with yourself every day. <sighs> it's talking about your spirit. In John chapter 4, it says this uh, in verse 23 and 24, Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they're the kind of worshippers that the Father seeks. God is spirit. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship him in spirit and in truth. This heart that it's talking about is your spirit and we'll come back to that in a few minutes. But I think the other three we understand a little bit more so we'll go through them really quickly. So the first person at this staff meeting is your body. And in this staff meeting... <sighs> Alright, so I hate meetings. So apparently I need to have more meetings with my, myself. <sighs> in this staff room... Every time you're faced with a decision, and let me say this, especially with the decision about how to respond to God. In fact, let's forget all the other decisions and focus only on that. When you are faced with the challenge to respond to God, either to believe in him for the first time, or as a Christian... Believe in him for what? In discipleship, you will regularly face an opportunity to respond to God. There's a staff meeting in your personhood, and they're representing, giving the voice for your body. Uh, just here is Liam. All he cares about is... So apparently the solution to your sin problem is multiple personality disorder. Who knew? 
the raw physical aspects of the decision. The temporary power of I'm hungry, I'm tired, or I'm bored can easily override the more eternal factors in this decision. Let me just say God cares about your body because it houses the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says, uh, do you not know that your body... Maybe he cares about our bodies because he created them. You ever stop to think about that? Bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit and closes off that verse by saying, therefore, honor God with your bodies. We're not saying that this is not important, but we're talking tonight about living by the Spirit. And this is important that we recognize. God cares about your body because ultimately... It's clear you don't even know what it means to live by the Spirit. Paul defines it in Galatians very clearly. If you had read all of that in context and exegeted Galatians correctly, you would have seen it and understood that you're 180 degrees backwards of what Paul actually taught. And he was inspired by God the Holy Spirit when he wrote that book. He's the master designer and architect of your body. Psalm 139 says this, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Verse 15 says, My frame was not hidden for you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. So God knows and cares about your body, and your body will bring to the, uh, the agenda of the staff meeting of that decision he will bring to the uh, agenda what it feels like physically. So let's say, for example, the challenge is, like tonight we've already had it in worship. Matt said a few times, come on church, let's raise your hands, let's worship God. Let me tell you, there was a staff meeting right there and your body said, hang on a minute. I've had a long afternoon. I think I would rather put my hands in my pockets, he said. He kind of shuffled his agenda and put it down on the, the, the coffee table inside. So if you don't lift, lift your hands up during a 7-Eleven rock and roll song at a seeker-driven church, that's not living by the Spirit. How are you ever going to win if you don't raise your hands during worship? Really? I do and said, let's worship next week. Because we don't feel like it. So your body, everybody understands that. The next thing that Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your, uh, your soul. We'll go for soul, okay? Body, soul, and spirit. So this, the next one is your soul. Your soul, in this staff meeting, when faced with this decision to respond to God, you know, your soul is described as the seat of your emotions. All she cares about is feelings. And she can focus on that above the truth. It's not all bad, your soul. She's not all bad, because that's where your personality lives. I believe the unique parts of you that make you you live in the realm of your soul. Matthew 16, 26 says, What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? God cares about your soul. He cares about your emotional state, how you feel. It's, she stores, she holds all your sensory triggers for the things that make you laugh and make you cry and make you worry and make you hope. But it's the part of you that makes you uniquely you. She holds all your idiosyncrasies, all those habits and those embarrassing, weird things that you do that you think nobody knows about, but everybody knows about them. Take a seat. Yemisi, thank you. So she brings her opinion to the agenda in face with this challenge to respond to God. She says, yeah, but I, I don't, you know, I feel a little bit hurt at the moment. 
Don't you know somebody said something to me? Somebody did something to me. And even though I know the truth of revelation about God, something's just getting in the way in the realm of my soul. Last one is your mind. Your mind, the thinking process that we go through. Your reasoning, your mental decision-making ability. He is all about analyzing and processing. Considering all the elements that would contribute to the whole. Formulas, equations, methods atop of his agenda as he works out the best response. God cares about your mind. Proverbs 23, it says, for as a man thinks, so he is. People often say, I didn't win because I wasn't in the right state of mind. So we've already seen there, this is what we're up against. In making this decision to respond to God, we've got three voices that are strong and they're contributing. But let me tell you this, in the face of that... By the way, the biblical solution for our sin problem is the gospel. The good news that Christ died for our sins. The sinless one imputes his righteousness to us as if we lived it. It's all a gift. But, I mean... He obviously doesn't even know what the biblical gospel is. Oi, what a miserable mess. You were born to win. You were born to overcome. The Bible is littered with revelation about this fact that you are the head and not the tail. Even though the odds are against us. My second point, and it feels like we're going down here, but I'm going to bring us right back up in just a few minutes. Um, The Bible's full of passages that say I'm the head, not the tail. Really? Minutes. The second point. So the first thing is understand what you're up against. And in doing that, we've realized that the odds are against us. Galatians chapter 5, verse 25. We read it in the message. This is what it says in the NIV. It says, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. We're told that the secret to, to living this life well, to winning, is to live by the Spirit. That means... That your spirit. So let's say I'm the person that's making this decision and representing the fourth. By the way, Deuteronomy uh, chapter 28 is where this head not tail stuff comes from. Let me read it to you. Out of context first. The Lord will make you the head and not the tail. Ta-da! There it is. Deuteronomy 28.13 says God's going to make you the head and not the tail. See? That's what he, that's, so God, God wants you to win. <laughs> but there's context. You see, context is important. Who is God talking to? And what does the rest of the verse say when we put it in context? Well, let's put a little context here. Deuteronomy 28, 11, God is speaking to the children of Israel regarding their obeying of the Mosaic covenant, the Mosaic law, okay? And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity, 2811, in the fruit of your womb and in the fruit of your livestock and the fruit of your ground within the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. Uh Uh-huh, this would be the land of Israel. The Lord will open to you his good treasury, the heavens to give the rain to your land in its season, to bless all the work of your hands, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. The Lord will make you the head and not the tail. You shall only go up and not down if, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command to you today, being careful 
to do them. And if you do not turn aside from any of the words that I command you today to the right hand or to the left to go after other gods and to serve them. You get the picture that's being painted here? But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes, I command you today, all these curses shall come upon you and they shall overtake you. You see, this is the blessings and curses associated with the obedience to the Mosaic Law, which didn't save anybody. There's only one person who kept the Mosaic Law perfectly. One. Jesus. Israel reduced to one person. Israel reduced to one. So, I mean, you're just taking this, the phrase, the biblical phrase. God, God, the Bible is just full of this talk that God wants you to be the head and not the tail. That's in a conditional sentence. It's a conditional clause in the Mosaic Covenant in the blessings and curses section of the covenant that has to do with whether or not you're keeping it. Unbelievable. Part is me tonight. I'm representing my spirit, small s. If I'm going to win in my life, and remember, you were born to win. So therefore, when we have this meeting together and I go, yes, okay, thank you, mind. Tell me what you think. Thank you, body. Tell me what you think. Thank you, soul. Tell me what you think. That's really interesting. But most of all, I'm making the decision because I want to live by the Spirit. The reason why the odds are against us is because from the moment you were born, in fact, even before you were born, your body has been fed and exercised. In the womb, we believe that, that the body is in existence. We believe that's a life, that's a person. And that's why we're passionate about helping people who get, find themselves in crisis, pregnancies, and all those kind of things. Because we believe there's a, there's a life, there's a body in there. So from the moment you were conceived, your body has been fed and exercised. From the moment you're born, your mind is being fed and developed. You know, when I do the home, my homework, uh, not my homework... The kids' homework, i got two sons, one's just turned nine, one's five, and when they bring their homework home, it's difficult for me as an adult 35-year-old bloke to do their homework because their minds are being developed, they're being fed, and they're being exercised even as children, and also the same with your soul. From the moment you're born, your, your personality begins to shine. In fact, people say that your, your personality is best on show when you're a child. And actually, as you, as you grow older, you become more socially aware and of what's acceptable and what's not, and you start to hide your personality. And then as you get older, you realize in maturity that it's okay to be you, and your soul comes back out again. But really, since the moment you were born, these three huh? have been fed and exercised, and then we become a Christian, or we're faced with the decision to become a Christian, and this is essentially a spiritual decision. And we need Which you can't make. You're not saved by making a decision. The Bible says that God is the one who causes you to be born again. Not you. To be people who are passionate about living by the Spirit. But the odds are against us because those three have been fed and exercised since before you can even remember. The Bible makes it clear that your spirit is dead to God until you become a Christian. This is true. So maybe you've been alive for 20 years, 30 years of diet and exercise for these three coming to the table, giving their agenda. This is what. By the way, dead means dead. Um, so the solution to death is being raised to life. And you can't just make a decision to raise yourself to life, can you? What we're going to do in this decision. And then all of a sudden your spirit becomes alive to God.
All of a sudden, there's a new sheriff in town in the staff room. All of a sudden, somebody walks in and says, fantastic, I really care about how you feel. I'm glad that you're tired and hungry, and I'm glad you've got your equations, but we're putting them to one side, because from this day forward, we're going to make decisions based on what, what I say. So, so, how, so how do I become obedient to God? Real simple. I need to have a staff meeting every day within, within myself. <sighs> this, is, this is like the Nestorian heresy for human beings. Good night. How many of me are there? Because we've got to live by the Spirit. So what we have to do is we have to even up the odds. That's my third point. Before I give you an opportunity to respond to God, I've got to tell you this because this is the punchline. This is the this is the moment that you understand. I really believe and I really hope and pray. I, I please preach the gospel here. Um, it wouldn't make any sense, but it would just improve this thing so much more than what you've done. Pray is that Jesus came as a man. Yes. To earth. Yes. To scratch the itch of humanity in these three realms. Uh, <laughs> what? Huh. Jesus came to earth to scratch the itch. I thought he came to earth to die on the cross for our sins. I, yeah, I thought you were going there. You, you're not even going to go to the cross? Really? He came as a person so we could see him. P humanity could see him and hear him and, and experience him with those senses which we had lived our lives by up until that moment. <laughs> Where are you getting any of this? But then when Jesus paid that ultimate price. He okay, there's the gospel. Paid the ultimate price. He died died on the cross. He rose from yes, the dead. He yes. overcame the realm that these three live in and said there's a new sheriff in town. Oh. Ah. <laughs> Psych. No, <it's> a <laughs> I thought you were going to preach the gospel there for a second. Boy, you got dangerously close. You've got to live by your spirit. And then before he ascended into heaven, he said these words in Acts chapter 1. Where's it gone? I don't think this guy knows the gospel at all. Oh, there it is. He said, but you will receive power. He said, wait, wait there, because if you wait there, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit, capital S, comes on you. And then you will... <laughs> He's making a point. Uh, should I explain to him what an unsel script is? Uh, yeah, you know, I hate to break it to you, <laughs> but... When this was written, they didn't have capital S and small s. There was no capital sigma. And so it was all capitals. It was an unsel script. Hey, yeah. Will be my witnesses. Then you will be able to live not by what you think about necessarily, although that's important. Then you will be able to live not by just how you feel, whether you're sick or well or tired or hungry. Not about how you feel. This is the blind leading the blind whether someone's upset you or, or hurt you, although those things are important to God, but you're able to stand aside from those things and say from now on, by the power of the Holy Spirit, capital S. Cue the sappy music. Connect That's to create the, uh, the illusion that the Holy Spirit is now descending so that you can 
respond to whatever God is supposedly speaking to you. Accepting with my spirit, small s, which up until this point has been unfed, unexercised, but from this day forward, my discipling process is about feeding and exercising this spirit so that when we come to the agenda, ultimately you can have your say, but I'm in charge. Where did you get any of this? But let's face it, if you're 20, they've got a 20-year start on you. But Jesus knew that. And that's why in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, Jesus said, John baptized with water. But in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. It's basically a fast track, catch up and overtake from your mind, your soul and your body. Really, which theologians taught this? Where is this laid out again as a doctrine in Scripture? I don't, I don't recall anybody anywhere in all of Christian history teaching anything so asinine as this. You, you've got 20 years on me, but you know what? The minute I become a Christian, I get access to something called the baptism in the Holy Spirit. It's like naught to 60 in a moment, because when God, the Holy Spirit, gets a hold of your life, and you don't just get filled or baptized, is a word we use sometimes once, but you continue through discipleship to get baptized again and again and again and again, and you start to live this life by the Spirit. How do I do it? How do I obey that command to love people when I'm so selfish? Because all I care about is how I feel. All I care about is how it feels in the moment. All I care about is if I can work it out and it makes sense, then I'll do it. How can I tithe? Because my mind tells me that it's too difficult. Because if you give 10%, that means you've got less left over. How can I tithe? <laughs> oh, man. Do it by the Spirit, dude. And so we'll make the decision based on that. How do we do it? By being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Wow, <laughs> that, oh, that was horrible. That, I mean, somebody buy that poor man a clue. I, you know, I feel like I need to send him a copy of a good theological systematic dogma dogmatics text. This guy doesn't have, like, clue one as to what the Bible's even about. Hey, uh, Paul, if you're uh, listening to this, send me an email, uh, email talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. And I'll send you uh, something for you to download a copy of the Book of Concord, and I'll send you the proper distinction of law and gospel as an e as an ebook. So, Paul, if you're listening to this, dude, you like you totally struck out here, dude. You don't you have no concept of what the Bible teaches. You really just made up your own stuff. Um, you don't have clue one what biblical Christianity is, what the gospel is, or what it even means to live your life by the Spirit. And uh, I'd love to give you some resources to help clean this problem up because uh, what you've been taught, that ain't Christianity. It isn't even biblical. And what you just preached, I mean, I don't know where you got that. Did, did Elvis beam that into your brain from the mothership? I'm curious. So, <clears throat> oh, man, boy, was that bad. So, um, first sermon back after my vacation, and uh, yeah, wow, um, I need a vacation again. So, what'd you think? You know, I'd uh, love to get your feedback. If you know, if you like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address: talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com/forward/slash/pirate Christianary. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at 
Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>